So now we'll pick back up Matthew chapter 8. And we'll read the whole chapter tonight. And then we're, we're going to attempt to go through the first 17 verses. So Matthew chapter 8. Let's begin reading in verse 1. It says, When Jesus came down from the mountain, large crowds followed him. And a leper came to him and bowed down before him and said, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I am willing, be cleansed. And immediately his leprosy was cleansed. And Jesus said to him, See that you tell no one, but go show yourself to the priests and present the offering that Moses commanded as a testimony to them. And when Jesus entered Capernaum, a centurion came to him, imploring him, and saying, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, fearfully tormented. Jesus said to him, I will come and heal him. But the centurion said, Lord, I am not worthy for you to come under my roof, but just say the word, and my servant will be healed. For I also am a man under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to this one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my slave, do this, and he does it. Now when Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who were following him, Truly I say to you, I have not found such great faith with anyone in Israel. I say to you that many will come from east and west and recline at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the sons of the kingdom will be cast out into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And Jesus said to the centurion, Go, it shall be done for you as you have believed. And the servant was healed that very moment. When Jesus came into Peter's home, he saw his mother-in-law lying sick in bed with a fever. He touched her hand, and the fever left her, and she got up and waited on him. When evening came, they brought to him many who were demon-possessed, and he cast out the spirits with a word and healed all who were ill. This was to fulfill what was spoken through Isaiah the prophet. He himself took our infirmities and carried away our diseases. Now when Jesus saw a crowd around him, he gave orders to depart to the other side of the sea. Then a scribe came and said to him, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. Jesus said to him, The foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Another of the disciples said to him, Lord, permit me first to go and bury my father. But Jesus said to him, Follow me, and allow the dead to bury their own dead. And he got into the boat, his disciples followed him. And behold, there arose a great storm on the sea, so that the boat was being covered with the waves, but Jesus himself was asleep. And they came to him and woke him, saying, Save us, Lord, we are perishing. He said to them, Why are you afraid, you men of little faith? Then he got up and rebuked the winds and the sea, and it became perfectly calm. The men were amazed and said, What kind of a man is this, that even the winds and the sea obey him? When he came to the other side, into the country of the Gadranese, two men who were demon-possessed met him as they were coming out of the tombs. They were so extremely violent that no one could pass by that way. And they cried out, saying, What business do we have with each other, son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? Now there was a herd of many swine feeding at a distance from them. The demons began to entreat him, saying, If you are going to cast us out, send us into the herds of swine. He said to them, Go. And they came out and went into the swine, and the whole herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea and perished in the waters. The herdsmen ran away and went to the city and reported everything, including what had happened to the demoniac. And behold, the whole city came out to meet Jesus, and when they saw him, they implored him to leave their region. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for our time to meet together tonight, Lord, to study your word. And Lord, we do pray that 
Uh, Lord, you would help us to have a correct understanding. Lord, that you would help us to uh, clearly and accurately teach your word. Father, we pray that you would grant to us faith and repentance. Lord, that you would build up our faith. Uh, and that, Lord, just as it was true of the centurion, that it would be true of us. Uh, Lord, that you would find great faith within us in that we believe your word and we believe in your power and trust in you, Lord, to deliver us from all things. So, Lord, be with us tonight and help us as we study, and it is in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. All right, so Matthew chapter 8 uh, begins, uh, you know, 5 to 7 was a long discourse in the Sermon on the Mount, uh, and now he's picking back up on the narrative uh, and recording these events and encounters that Jesus had. And when the Bible is doing this, when it's recording these historical narratives, it's not doing so merely for the sake of relaying history to us. Though these are historical events, historical persons, and we have to believe it like that, right? The Bible isn't myth or fable. It's not operating and dealing in that kind of way. It's dealing with real people, real events, real places, right? Things that actually happen. But it's not merely recording for us history for the sake of history. Is doing so in order to teach to us doctrine, theology, righteousness, right? The way that we're supposed to live. This is the purpose of the Bible given to us so that the man of God may be complete for every good work. Everything we need for life and godliness is found in the, in the word of Christ. And this is what is being recorded here. It's given to us to instruct us, to teach us various things that we need to know for our faith, right? So that we will be stable and so that we'll know how to live a life that is pleasing to God. So here, we'll just take these as they come. The first encounter is in verses 1 to 4. And this is as Jesus, it says, came down from the mountain, large crowds followed him. Here he was on the mountain. This is where the Sermon on the Mount took place. He was there. That's where he taught the people. And now he's coming down after teaching the people. And there are large crowds of people who are following him, right? Following him in this way. So Yes, Jesus was well known. There was a measure of popularity in that there were many people who came to see him, to hear him, to witness what was taking place. But that doesn't mean that all of them believed in him. Right? We know that true faith was very rare, very rare. There were many people who began with Jesus or who followed him temporarily, but they did not count the cost. And he'll actually deal with this uh, later in this chapter whenever he issues this challenge of discipleship, right? What it takes to be one of his followers, because there are many superficial followers of Christ. And that's what is indicative here with these large crowds that follow him. And this is why he's constantly having to explain to them, rebuke them about what it means to be one of his disciples, to be a true follower of Christ. And so he has to teach those things. And many people, they don't want to hear that. And so then they will walk away. But here in verse 2, there's a leper that came, and it says, And bowed down before him and said, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Here, a leper, a person who has uh, this very serious disease, a disease that would also make them an outcast in society in terms of their access to culture, to society, to uh, family, to friends, to everything that's going on in terms of worship, and access to God. So they were cut off from that because of their leprosy, because of this very serious disease. So this is a 
debilitating disease, not only in terms of the physical ramifications it has on the body, but also in terms of the social and cultural ramifications and the spiritual, because you're not able to go to the temple and worship God in the proper way that they were called to do. So this leper comes, he bows down before him, here showing his humility, his humility, his fear of the Lord, in that he humbles himself in the proper way before Christ. So this is not someone who is entitled, like so many people today, who demand, they demand that God do their bidding, that God do what they require of him, right? He's not that way at all. He's bowing down, showing his humility, his reverence in the proper way. And he says, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Right. He's not a presumptuous man either. Now here, his faith is being expressed because he's not doubting the power of Christ. He knows that Jesus Christ possesses the power to cleanse him of his leprosy, right? To heal him perfectly of his leprosy. The only condition that this man is unsure about is if he's willing to do it, if it is consistent with the will of God. So he has no doubt concerning the power of Christ or the person of Christ, what he is able to do. He knows that he's able to cleanse him. The only thing, the only lingering doubt in his mind is simply a matter of, if you're willing to do this, if it's according to your will and you are willing to do so, then I know you have the ability and the power to make me clean. So he does have true faith. There's no doubt in him. It's just a matter of the will of God. That's the only thing that is on his mind. If you're willing. Now this, in contrast to many people today who have the name it and claim it, who would say that, oh, of course God is willing. God is willing. He doesn't want anyone to be sick. He doesn't want anyone to be poor. He doesn't want anyone to go through hardships and sufferings. And the only reason that someone will experience those things in life is because of their own lack of faith. But that's not the case at all. And there are many who would even um, look down upon a request like this. They would say, oh, you shouldn't say, Lord, if you're willing. Of course God is willing. They're very presumptuous in the way that they approach God. But, and they would even say that if we pray, Lord, if it's according to your will, that they would say that's a lack of faith. If we pray, Lord, heal me of this disease, but only if it's consistent with your will, they would say, no, you shouldn't pray like that. You should just pray, God, give me this healing. You should claim it. You should pronounce it. Say the word, and then God will do it. But this is not what the Bible teaches. Here, this man has true faith, and he has the right perspective. He has humility. He understands that it must be dependent on the will of God. If God is willing, then he will heal us. And this is the way that we should be, not only in terms of praying for needs like this, but just in terms of our day-to-day -day life. Everything must be contingent upon the will of Christ, the will of God. James chapter 4, verses 13 to 17. James chapter 4, verse 13. Even in the common day-to-day -day activities, things that we plan as a part of our life, we must condition those things upon the will of God. James 4, verse 13. Here, the apostle is rebuking them because of their 
presumption in their pride. James 4.13 Come now, you who say, Today or tomorrow we will go to such and such a city, and spend a year there, and engage in business, and make a profit. Yet you do not know what your life will be like tomorrow. You are just a vapor that appears for a little while, and then vanishes away. Instead, you ought to say, If the Lord wills, we will live, and also do this and that. But as it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. Therefore, the one who knows the right thing to do and does not do it, to him it is a sin. Here, the problem is not that people are making plans, thinking about the future, right? There are, in a certain sense, we have to do that, right? We have to do that day to day, week to week, month to month, even year to year. So he's not saying that it's wrong to be thinking about the future, to be thinking about things that are going to take place in the future, making plans and preparations for those things. But they're doing it in boasting, in boastful arrogance, not dependent on the will of God. They are completely confident that this is exactly what is going to happen because this is what they have determined is going to happen. But everything must be subjected to the will of God. And that's why he says, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, this is what we are going to do. If God is willing, then we will do this or that. If the Lord is willing, we will make it home tonight. If the Lord is willing, we will come back together on Sunday. If the Lord is willing, we will do this or that in a year from now, or however long it is from now, right? If God wills, this is what we will do. And this is the way the leper is. If God wills, then you can make me clean. If it's consistent with the will of God. And here, is it consistent with the will of God? Yes, yes it is. Verse 3. Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I am willing, be cleansed. And immediately his leprosy was cleansed. Here, Jesus was willing to heal him. Notice that as well. He says, I am willing. I am willing. Now, a mere man can't say this, but he can because he is both fully God and fully man. He is almighty God, so he can pronounce the will of God. This is the will of God. I am willing to do these things. He could say God is willing, or he can say I am willing because it is one and the same, and their will is one and the same. So he says, yes, I am willing, be cleansed. And immediately his leprosy was cleansed. Immediately. It did not take. Uh, days, weeks, months for this to happen, but it happened instantaneously. In an instant, in a moment, he was perfectly cleansed from this leprosy that he had been tormented with for a long time. Now, in terms of leprosy, in terms of leprosy, the physical disease is very rare, right? Probably none of us has ever met anyone who had leprosy, correct? And in case of America, the disease has almost been eradicated, uh, although uh, it's probably on the rise again because of Joe Biden. Anyway, but uh, you know they let people across the border, and, and there's all sorts of diseases coming, and one of those is leprosy. So it is uh, resurging in various places, and in other parts of the world, it is still a disease that people deal with that is more common. But in terms of our experience, none of us have ever met a leper, and none of us have ever uh, had leprosy in that way. However, in terms of what it represents spiritually, right. it is common to man. So physical leprosy is uncommon, 
But spiritual leprosy is very, very common to man and actually is a disease that all of us are plagued with, which is the disease of our sin. And that's why these miracles are taking place. The physical miracle is representing, it is a picture to them of the greater spiritual miracle that needs to take place, which is the cleansing of sin, right? The cleansing of sin. Now to see that the miracles are themselves indicative of a spiritual reality, Mark chapter 2. Mark chapter 2, verse 1 to 13. Mark 2, verses 1 to 13. It says, When he had come back to Capernaum several days afterwards, it was heard that he was at home. And many were gathered together, so that there was no longer room, not even near the door. And he was speaking the word to them. And they came bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. Being unable to get to him because of the crowds, they removed the roof above him, and when they had dug an opening, they let down the pallet on which the paralytic was lying. And Jesus, seeing their faith, said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. But some of the scribes were sitting there and reasoning in their hearts. Why does this man speak that way? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Immediately, Jesus, aware in his spirit that they were reasoning that way within themselves, said to them, Why are you reasoning about these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic? Your sins are forgiven, or to say, get up and pick up your pallet and walk. But so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, get up, pick up your pallet, and go home. And he got up and immediately picking up the pallet and went out in the sight of everyone, so that they were all amazed and will glorify God, saying, we've never seen anything like this. So here... So that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He says to the paralytic, take up your pallet and go home. The healing of the physical disease was to teach them that Jesus can heal the spiritual disease. The physical disease is rare. The spiritual disease is universal. right? So if you want to be a universalist, then this is the only universalism that's allowed in the Bible. Universal sin. Universal leprosy. Right, universal blindness, universal uh, paralytics. This is what we all are by nature spiritually, and we need the power of Christ to overcome, to cleanse us from our spiritual leprosy. And these physical healings were for that purpose, right? To teach these truths and these realities. That this is the case, Leviticus 13, 45 to 46. Leviticus 13, verse 45. As for the leper who has the infection, his clothes shall be torn, and the hair of his head shall be uncovered, and he shall cover his mustache and cry, Unclean! Unclean! He shall remain unclean all the days during which he has the infection. He is unclean. He shall live alone. His dwelling shall be outside the camp. Outside the camp is where his dwelling is. Now, again, simply having the physical disease of leprosy is not what sends someone to hell. 
right? We all know that. That's not what makes someone unclean in the sight of God, ultimately. But here, it's a symbol to teach the spiritual reality. And the lepers, the presence of the lepers among them was for that reason. And a leper who has true faith in Christ, even if he's not healed of his disease, while he is ceremonially unclean, spiritually he's clean. And, and he's not going to be outside the camp in the kingdom of God, but he will be inside the camp in the kingdom of God. Then one other passage, Isaiah chapter 1. Isaiah 1 verse 4 to 6. Isaiah chapter 1 verse 4 says, Alas, sinful nation, people weighed down with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, sons who act corruptly. They have abandoned the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They have turned away from him. Where will you be stricken again as you continue in your rebellion? The whole head is sick, and the whole heart is faint. From the sole of the foot, even to the head, there is nothing sound in it, only bruises, welts, and raw wounds, not pressed out or bandaged, not softened with oil. So there, when he's talking about from the sole of the foot, even to the head, He's not talking about their physical bodies. He's talking about them spiritually. Their whole being is completely corrupt. There's no soundness in them. And what is it that makes us unsound in this way? It is our sin. Isn't it our sin that makes a separation between us and our God? So here, the physical disease of leprosy is indicative of the spiritual disease and that Jesus has the power to heal the physical is evidence to us that he and he alone can cleanse us of all of our sins and that we should go to him just as this leper went to Jesus for a physical healing and a spiritual healing we should all go to him for the spiritual healing that he would cleanse us of our disease and not look to anyone else who else can do this no one. Only Jesus Christ can. So he's the one that we should go to for salvation. Then also verse 4. Jesus said, See that you tell no one, but go show yourself to the priests and present the offering that Moses commanded as a testimony to them. Here Jesus tells him, and he does this multiple times throughout the Gospels, where he will heal someone and he tells them, don't tell people what, have, what has happened. And the reason he's doing this is because he knows how fickle people are, and he knows that many people will come just to see the, the spectacle. They're not coming for the right reasons. When they hear about these kinds of miracles, they're just going to come out of vain curiosity, and he doesn't want to pique the curiosity of those kinds of people. He doesn't want them around because they're going to hinder him from doing what he really wants to do, which is be with those who are genuine and authentic, and who have a true desire for the things of God. So he tells him, don't tell anyone, but instead go to the priest, present the offering that Moses commanded as a testimony to them. There is a, a process by which the leper, who has been uh, ostracized and who has been placed outside the camp, there is a process for which him to be restored and brought back into the camp so that he is now uh, reestablished there within the society, within the culture, and is able to worship God again 
And Jesus tells him, go to the priest. There's an offering that needs to be made. The priest will examine them. And then the priest will declare that he is clean. And now he doesn't have to live in this way anymore. And all of this is according to the law of Moses. Actually, we just read from Leviticus chapter 13. That's the chapter that gives these regulations for leprosy, from leprosy. Uh, and there you can find all of those things. Now, also another point on this is one of the criticisms that was brought against Jesus and then also that was brought against his apostles and his disciples is that they were trying to overthrow the law of Moses, that they were trying to change the customs that had been delivered to them by Moses. But this isn't the case at all, is it? Jesus isn't overthrowing the law of Moses. He's telling this leper to go and do what Moses commanded. Go and make the offerings according to the law of Moses. So when people make those charges against him, against his apostles, against his disciples, they're false charges. They're not legitimate charges, but this is what people do. They will say that they're twisting the Bible. They're rejecting the Bible. They're not following the Bible, but they are following the Bible. It is their detractors. It is their enemies. They're the ones that are changing the law of Moses. Jesus and his apostles are following the law of Moses. Now, again, I'll point that out because this is common. This is common, and it will be even common today, that if we're doing what's right in the sight of God, there will be detractors, naysayers, and critics who will accuse us of rejecting the Bible when that isn't the case at all. A couple examples of this. First, Acts chapter 6. Verses 8 to 15. Acts 6, verse 8. says, And Stephen, full of grace and power, was performing great wonders and signs among the people. But some men from what was called the synagogue of the freedmen, including both Cyrenians and Alexandrians, and some from Cilicia and Asia, rose up and argued with Stephen. But they were unable to cope with the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Then they secretly induced men to say, we have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. And they stirred up the people, the elders and the scribes, and they came to him and dragged him away and brought him before the council. They put forward false witnesses who said, This man incessantly speaks against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Nazarene, Jesus, will destroy this place and alter the customs which Moses handed down to us. In fixing their gaze on him, all who were sitting in the council saw his face like the face of an angel. So here, we've heard him say blasphemous words against Moses and against God. Did Stephen ever speak blasphemous words against Moses and God? No. They said, he always incessantly speaks against the holy place and the law. Is he doing that? No. We've heard him say that Jesus is going to destroy this place and alter the customs which Moses handed to us. Is that true? No, none of these things are true. These are false witnesses. They're liars, and yet they're doing this in the court, and they're doing it under a guise of religiosity because we're not talking about pagans and heathens here. These are Israelites brought before the Sanhedrin, brought before the council of the Jews, people who claim to follow the law of Moses, and yet Stephen, a true follower of Moses, 
is being accused of breaking the law of Moses by those who claim to be true followers but are themselves liars. Another example, Acts chapter 21. This same charge was brought against the Apostle Paul. Acts 21 verse 20. Now in this context, this is not amongst enemies, but even the enemies of Paul had spread these rumors so that even in the church, they were unsure, they had questions about what the Apostle Paul was doing out there. The Jewish Christians in Jerusalem themselves had questions and concerns about what was going on in the ministry of the Apostle Paul because of the lies of unbelieving Jews, what they were spreading about him, and then he had to deal with these things and calm down the people so that they didn't believe these things. Acts 21, verse 20. says, When they heard it, they began glorifying God and said to him, You see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed, and they are zealous for the law. And they have been told about you, that you are teaching all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children, nor to walk according to the customs. So here, this is what they're saying. But is it true? No, of course not. Of course he's not doing those things. He's not telling them to forsake Moses. He's not telling them to do any of these things. But these liars are spreading rumors about him, and then he has to deal with it, right? And so then they come up with a means by which he can make very clear and obvious to the believing Jews that these are false charges and that he doesn't hold to these things. So here we see that Jesus was not, he did not come to overthrow the law. He did not come to abolish the law. He came to fulfill it and to keep it in the true, proper sense. And here with this leper, he tells him to go, go to the priest, do what is necessary, according to the law of Moses. And in the state of the people at this time, he's also telling him to go to the priest, who's probably an unbeliever, right? And also to the temple, which was a source of contention for Jesus. But because it was according to the law of Moses and what needed to be done, then that's what he commanded him to do. Okay, verse 5. It says, And when Jesus entered Capernaum, a centurion came to him, imploring him, and saying, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, fearfully tormented. Jesus said to him, I will come and heal him. But the centurion said, Lord, I'm not worthy for you to come under my roof, but just say the word, and my servant will be healed. For I also am a man under authority with soldiers under me. I say to this one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my slave, do this, and he does it. Now when Jesus heard this, he marveled, and said to those who were following him, Truly I say to you, I have not found such great faith with anyone in Israel. Here, another experience, another encounter with Jesus Christ. When he's coming into Capernaum, a centurion came to him. Now what's the importance of this? He's a Gentile. He's a Roman. He's a centurion. He's not a native. He's not a Jew. He's not an Israelite. He is a centurion. But this centurion comes to him and says, Lord. So he thinks very highly of Jesus, doesn't he? He calls him Lord. 
Now, we remember, we've talked a lot about this recently at the end of chapter 7. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But calling Jesus Lord is not itself an evil thing. If done correctly, that's the issue. If we mean it, and if we're sincere and true, then it's good to call him our Lord. But if we're not sincere, if we're hypocrites and false, then it's not good to call him Lord, Lord, if we're not going to do what he says. But in this way, the centurion, he means it in the true proper sense. He's a true follower of Christ. He truly is his Lord, and this is manifested in this encounter with the centurion. Okay, So this is a Roman centurion, but he is a righteous man. Okay, so he comes, and he's imploring Jesus. So he's begging him, urging him, right? He's emphatic about this, zealously imploring him. And what is his concern? My servant is lying paralyzed at home, fearfully tormented. What is the second greatest commandment? You shall love your neighbor as yourself. He's not coming for his own benefit but he's coming for the sake of another, right? Now we might say, well, yeah, but it's his servant. And if the servant is, is healed and better, then he's going to be able to serve him. But that's not his motivation for coming. He's coming for love, love of his neighbor. And this is an evidence of his godliness, of the kind of man that he is. Faith without works is dead. This man has true faith and his faith is being manifested by his good works. And in this case, it is love of neighbor. How can we love God who we do not see if we don't love our neighbor who we do see? And here, his neighbor is his servant, not his superior, not his equal, not his peer, but his inferior. In terms of his rank and relation, the servant is inferior to the centurion, yet, though he is his inferior, look at the love, the care, the compassion that he has for this man. Isn't it true many times, that those who are in authority over others, they lord it over them, right? They treat them with contempt. They look down upon them. They show no care or concern for those who are underneath them, whether that's in the workplace, whether that's in the home, whether that's in society, wherever it is, this is how many people treat those who are under them, like they're trash, like they're garbage. They stomp all over them. But that's not the way the centurion is. He is a man who has true love of God, and he has true love of his neighbor. And even though it is his slave or his servant who is in need, he goes to Jesus and is imploring him, begging him to help his servant, to help his servant because of his love for his servant. And this is the way that we ought to be as well with those who are under us. Whether it's a husband toward his wife, in terms of authority, he has authority over her. Whether it's the parents toward the children, that they should not treat the children with disdain. They shouldn't trample upon them. They should love them. Or whether it's in the workplace, wherever it's at, where we have those who are under us, we should have this kind of care and concern for them. This is the way of the, the centurion. And we know that he was righteous because he's commended by Christ. Colossians chapter 3, verse 22 Colossians 3.22, you also notice that Jesus doesn't say to him, why do you have a slave? Don't you know that's a sin? 
He doesn't do that at all, does he? He doesn't rebuke him for having a servant or a slave, but he does heal him because the Bible doesn't condemn slavery if it's practiced according to righteousness. The institution of slavery is not the greatest evil in the history of the world, as is commonly taught today in American society, nor is it the greatest evil in American history. Now, again, anything, any institution can be corrupted. It can be practiced in the wrong way, but that does not mean that we should condemn the institution itself or the proper just practice of the institution. And in terms of slavery, it is an institution established by God. It's regulated in the Bible, so it's not forbidden, but it should be practiced according to the biblical standard with justice and with righteousness. And we have an example of this here. Right? Not all masters treat their slaves cruelly. This is a good master, this centurion. He's a good man, and he's treating his slave in a good way. Right? And this is the way that the Bible expects all masters to treat their slaves, and then it regulates how slaves ought to behave toward their masters. Colossians chapter 3, verse 22. Slaves in all things obey those who are your masters on earth, not with external service as those who merely please men, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, do your work heartily, as for the Lord, rather than for men. Knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance. It is the Lord Christ whom you serve. For he who does wrong will receive the consequences of the wrong which he has done, and that without partiality. Masters, grant to your slaves justice and fairness, knowing that you too have a master in heaven. Give them justice and fairness. Treat them properly. Well, if you were paralyzed at home and being fearfully tormented, would you want someone to go and help you? Would you want your master to go and implore the one man on earth who is able to heal you to come and heal you? Of course we would. That's what we would want someone to do to us. So what does the master do for his servant? The very thing that he himself would want done for him. Do to others as you would have them do to you. So he goes to Jesus And he implores him to come. And Jesus says, yes, I will come and heal him. So Jesus hears a request. He knows what the man is asking. Jesus is willing not only to heal him, but to come with him. The expectation here is I will come to your home and then I will heal the man there, which is typically how Jesus healed people, that he would be in their presence He would touch them or do something else, and that is the way that he would heal them was there in their presence. However, we know that Jesus has the power to do whatever he wants, and he doesn't necessarily have to be in the presence, but because of the weakness of the faith of men, he would commonly go for their benefit, right, in order to do those things. But then notice verse 8. But the centurion said, Lord, I am not worthy for you to come under my roof. But just say the word, and my servant will be healed. Now here, when the centurion says this, he's the one that introduces this into the conversation. He's the one that says, it's not necessary for you to come to my house. As a matter of fact, I'm not worthy for you to come to my house. Isn't that humility? He is a very humble man. Though we'll see, of all the men in Israel at this time, he's the one that has the greatest faith. But his faith is manifested in his love of his neighbor, his humility toward God. 
So love of God, love of neighbor. The two great commandments right here in this centurion. Right, right, right here in this man. Before the day of Pentecost. Before the writing of the New Testament. Even before the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ in terms of it happening historically. How is this man able to do these things? Where did all this come from for him to be able to do this? It has to come from God, right? From his salvation. Yes, from his salvation. And he's, a Jew. he's not a Jew. He's a Gentile. And this is happening in this way. I'm not worthy for you to come under my roof. Isaiah chapter 66, verse 1. This is the way that we must be in order to be a child of God. We have to have this kind of humility. Isaiah 66, verse 1. Thus says the Lord, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. Where then is a house you could build for me? And where is a place that I may rest? For my hand made all these things. Thus all these things came into being, declares the Lord. But to this one I will rest, to him who is humble and contrite of spirit, and who trembles at my word. Here, the humble man, the contrite man, the one who trembles at the word of God, this is the one that the Lord will look to. Now, in this case, the centurion had the unique opportunity of being in the presence of Jesus Christ. So he could manifest his humility, his contrition, his trembling before God in the person of the incarnate word of God. And this is what he's doing here by saying, I'm not worthy to have you come under my roof. As exhilarating as that would be, and as wonderful as that would be for any child of God, to have God in human flesh, the Lord Jesus Christ, come to your house, right? Eat at your house, do something at your house, right? Wouldn't that be exciting for all of us? Yet here, he takes it as an opportunity to express and show his unworthiness, his humility, the way that he views himself. Now, most people don't think in this way. Most people believe that they're actually doing God a favor. They're doing God a favor by showing up, right? That he ought to be very happy that I'm here today, that, that I'm one of his children, that I'm serving him. Isn't God fortunate to have such a swell fellow like me to be one of his disciples? But that's not the way of the centurion. And this is not the way that we can be. We have to be like him. Lord, we're not worthy. We are unworthy slaves. This is what we are in the sight of God, and this is how we have to be in our own sight, right? We're not worthy to even be in the presence of the Lord, to be called his children, right? But, but we are by the grace of God. It is all by the grace of God. So he says, I'm not worthy for you to come under my roof. Just say the word and my servant will be healed. For I also am a man under authority with soldiers unto me. I say to this one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my slave, do this, and he does it. So here, his faith is seen, his confidence, his belief in the power of Christ and in the word of Christ. All you need to do is speak the word. Say the word, and it will happen. And he learns from the lesser to the greater. He himself is a man of authority. He himself has a regulated type of authority on earth in terms of man. Even as a mere man, he says, I have authority. And when I use my authority, 
whatever my word is, it comes to pass. I say to one of my soldiers, go, and he goes. I say to another one, comes, he comes. I say to my slave, do this, he does it. I simply speak a word, and whatever I say, this is what people do. Now, if he knows that from his lesser authority, then what about the greater authority of Christ? Then certainly, all you have to do is speak the word, and it'll happen, because you are the Almighty God, and whatever you say can come into being. Isn't this the way that God created the world? He spoke words, and he brought the world into existence out of nothing by the simple mere power of his word. The word of Christ is powerful. It is powerful. And though we are not in the presence of Christ as the centurion, in terms of being in the physical presence of the incarnate word of God, we do have his word among us, do we not? And that's what Isaiah 66, 1 to 2. We may not all be in the presence of Christ as the centurion was, but we are in the presence of his word. And we must tremble at his word as the centurion trembled in the presence of Christ. In the presence of the incarnate word, this is what we must do as well. So, if he himself is able to give a word and these things come to pass, then certainly the King of kings and Lord of lords can speak his word and whatever he says will come to pass. Then verse 10. Now, when Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who were following, Truly I say to you, I have not found such great faith with anyone in Israel. Here, Jesus takes the opportunity as a teaching opportunity, right? In order to highlight and to bring this forward as an example. Now, here we see that it is not necessarily evil. Actually, in the right way, it's good and proper. If there is someone who does something exemplary among us, if there is someone who has an exemplary faith among us, for us to bring that person forward as an example for us to follow is not itself evil. It's not contrary to the will of God. Isn't that what Jesus is doing here? He's bringing this man forward. He's pointing him out to everyone saying, look at this man. Look at his faith. I have not found anyone in Israel with faith like this man. Now, the point being not to boast in this man, but rather to show him forward as an example of what the rest of them need to be like. You people need to follow his example. You need to learn from him. Right? So he is the one that points it out. Jesus is the one that points it out. And if something like this happens in our own context, then there's nothing wrong with us pointing this out, even publicly, to everyone else as an example of what we all need to do. Now, he's doing this, I think, for a couple of reasons. First, to give glory to God. To give glory to God, because God is the one who assigns the faith. God is the one who does this, according to Romans chapter 12. God gives each one a measure of faith according to his will. Uh, Romans 12, verse 3. Romans 12, 3. For through the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think more highly of himself than he ought to think, 
but to think so as to have sound judgment, as God has allotted to each a measure of faith. God is the one who allots to each a measure of faith. All those who are children of God, who have true saving faith, that faith has come from God. However, even amongst the children of God, God can give to one a greater faith than another. Now, this doesn't mean the one with lesser faith is excused or can say, well, there's nothing I can do about it. No, they need to do what's right in the sight of God. But God can give to one a greater measure of faith. And he did that in the case of this centurion. He gave him great faith. And Jesus is saying, I've not found this in anyone else in Israel, including even his own disciples, right? 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 He's pointing him out as above everyone else, right? In terms of the quality of his faith. So he has an exemplary faith, and this would be to bring glory to God. Secondly, as an example, right? He's putting him forward as an example for others to follow. If Jesus is doing this, then the obvious conclusion everyone who's listening should come to is that we need to have the faith of the centurion. We need to be like him. We need to follow in his example. So that would be a second reason for Jesus pointing this out. And then a third reason is to shame them. It's shameful that this foreigner, this Gentile, has greater faith than all of the Jews. How can this be? How can this come about that a foreigner who's not even a native of the land, who's not a Jew, not an Israelite, who hasn't been raised in the faith, who didn't have parents and grandparents and great-grandparents who were bouncing him on their lap, teaching them the things of God. That wasn't the case with this centurion. He likely was raised in a pagan home, yet how is it that he, late in life, has come to such faith And the rest of you haven't. So it is also to shame them for their lack of faith because they're not like him. And this man is a foreigner. Jesus does this in other places as well. Luke chapter 4. Luke chapter 4, verse 16. And the purpose of the shame is to get them to act. Right? Isn't that the case? To shake us, jolt us out of our lethargic state and then to say, you know what, we need to do what's right. We need to do what's right. And to, as it says in Romans chapter 11, to provoke them to jealousy so that they too will come and be partakers and sharers in the salvation of God. Luke chapter 4 verse 16. He came to Nazareth where he'd been brought up, and as was his custom, he entered the synagogue on the Sabbath and stood up to read. And the book of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. He opened the book and found the place where it was written. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives, and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are oppressed, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. He closed the book and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today the scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all were speaking well of him, and wondering at the gracious words which were falling from his lips. And they were saying, Is this not Joseph's son? He said to them, 
No doubt you will quote this proverb to me. Physician, heal yourself. Whatever we heard was done in Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And he said, truly I say to you, no prophet is welcome in his hometown. But I say to you in truth, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the sky was shut up for three years and six months, and when a great famine came over all the land. And yet Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of Elijah the prophet, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. And all the people in the synagogue were filled with rage as they heard these things. They got up, drove him out of the city, led him to the brow of a hill on which their city had been built in order to throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went his way. So here, Jesus brings this up to the people, to his own people, to those that he was raised with, his own hometown where he was raised, that there were many widows in the days of Elijah, and Elijah didn't help any of them except for one, and she was a Gentile. And there were many lepers in Elisha's day, and none of them were cleansed except for one who was a Gentile, this Naaman the Syrian. And then they wanted to kill him because of this, and they attempted to murder him, but God protected him. Isn't that what Jesus is doing here. He is pointing out this reality. How is it that in all the land of Israel, there's not one widow with true faith that Elijah has to go to Zarephath? How is it that in all the lepers of Israel, there's not one with faith, but this foreigner, this name in the Syrian, these people who have the word of God, but they've not kept the word of God. They do not believe the word of God. Also, Luke 17 this happens. Luke 17, verse 17. This is when Jesus cleansed 10 lepers, 10 of them. Luke 17, 17. Then Jesus answered and said, were there not 10 cleansed, but the nine, where are they? Was no one found who returned to give glory to God except this foreigner? So here again, it's accomplishing both of these things. It is pointing out the faith and the good in this foreigner, but also it's shaming the other ones, the other nine, who were Jews, who were Israelites, but they didn't come back to give the Lord to God. Only this foreigner did so. And this is the same as in Matthew chapter 8. Why is it that among those who have the word of God, generation after generation after generation, there is no one with faith, like this centurion, that it has to be some foreigner who has this kind of faith. Where is the faith? So all of those points are being made there. Also, we are taught in this that no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly. Right. right? This from Romans chapter 2. Romans chapter 2. Yes, Romans 2, 25 to 29. This truth, and we'll see one other passage from Jeremiah, where this same truth is taught. So it's taught in the Old Testament. Here it's being exemplified in the ministry of Jesus Christ. And then it's repeated in the Apostle Paul in the book of Romans. So it's been known from the very beginning. One's 
physical national heritage, their ethnicity, has absolutely nothing to do with their spiritual condition right. and where they're going to go in the life to come. Romans chapter 2, verse 25. This is seen in the centurion. For indeed, circumcision is a value if you practice the law, but if you are a transgressor of the law, your circumcision has become uncircumcision. So if the uncircumcised man keeps the requirements of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? And he who is physically uncircumcised, if he keeps the law, will not he judge you who, though having the letter of the law and circumcision, are transgressors of the law? For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor a circumcision, that which is outward in the flesh, but he is a Jew who is one inwardly. And circumcision is that which is of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from men, but from God. There, 27. This is what's happening in Matthew chapter 8. He who is physically uncircumcised, if he keeps the law, will he not judge you, who though having the letter of the law and circumcision, are transgressors of the law. That's what Jesus is pointing out. That this centurion has faith. But where's the faith in the Israelites? There's hardly any to be found. And then Jeremiah chapter 9, verse 23 to 26. The prophet Jeremiah teaches this same truth. What Romans 2, 25 to 29 is teaching, the prophet Jeremiah taught in Jeremiah chapter 9, verses 23 to 26, and this same truth was exemplified in the children of Abraham and in the children of Isaac. In Isaac and Ishmael and then in Jacob and Esau. Okay? So this has been known from the very beginning. Jeremiah 9, 23. Thus says the Lord, Let not a wise man boast of his wisdom, and let not the mighty man boast of his might. Let not a rich man boast of his riches. But let him who boasts boast of this that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who exercises loving kindness, justice, and righteousness on the earth. For I delight in these things, declares the Lord. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, that I will punish all who are circumcised and yet uncircumcised, Egypt and Judah and Edom and the sons of Ammon and Moab and all those inhabiting the desert who clip the hair of their temples. For all the nations are uncircumcised and all the house of Israel are uncircumcised of Right. What else can that mean when he says, I will punish those who are circumcised, yet uncircumcised? Circumcised in the flesh, but uncircumcised in the heart. Right. Well, what good does that do to be circumcised in the flesh if you're not circumcised in the heart? They're going to get punished. And who are they going to be punished with? Egypt, Edom, Ammon, Moab, and those in the desert. He, there's no difference between any of them. Even though those of Judah are circumcised in the flesh, they're just like the nations. They're just like the pagans. And they're all going to be punished together in the same way. So, isn't that the same as Romans 2, 25 to 29? And isn't that the same here in our passage in Matthew chapter 8? Also, it should be pointed out here. The means used by God to bring the centurion into access with the word of God is the Roman occupation of Israel. The Roman occupation of Israel is the means used by God for this centurion to come here 
where he would have heard the word of God. Now, it doesn't say when he heard it or how he heard it, but I think that's the, the most obvious uh, explanation as to how this man knew about Christ, knew about the word of God, knew about the way of salvation, right? He's obviously a believer, and no one can be a believer without the word of God. Faith comes from hearing, hearing by the word of Christ. You cannot be a Christian without hearing the word of Christ. Well, how did this man hear the word of Christ? Isn't he in the one place in the world where there's access to the word of God at this time? And all of that came about, though he's a foreigner from Rome or from wherever else in the Roman Empire, because he is a centurion and he has been stationed in this area and that's where he heard the word of God for his own salvation. And all of that is happening. All the events that led up in his life and all the events that happened in the world in terms of the world events that no one, none of these men, the leaders, they're not thinking about the will of God. They don't care about God. They don't care about the will of God. But who is the one who is overseeing everything that they do? God is. So that this centurion would be in this place would hear the word of God for his salvation because he is one of Christ's sheep. He is one of God's elect, and God will get them to the word of Christ. Right. And that's what's happened here. Even though we would say the Roman occupation of Israel is a negative thing. For the people of Israel, it is a negative thing to be occupied by a foreign power. And yet, even though it is an evil thing, God uses it for good. Because... All things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. God works it together for good. And in this way, God brought these things about for his salvation, for his good. And that shows us then that we should have great confidence in the will of God. Even when things seem to be negative, horrible, bad, you got a president who can't even talk. He doesn't know where he's at half the time. you got all sorts of horrible things happening in the world today. But God is still in control, and God will save his people. He will save every one of his elect ones. And he'll use these evil people in their plotting and planning in the world to bring these things about, to accomplish his perfect will. Then also, verse 11 and 12. I say to you, many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, but the sons of the kingdom will be cast out into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Jesus uses this as a teaching opportunity to declare what's going to be true, that there will be many who will come from east and west. And these, he means who? He's talking about Gentiles. Many Gentiles will come from east and west, east and west of Israel, and they're going to recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the patriarchs, the patriarchs of Israel. These Gentiles are going to come in the kingdom of heaven and recline with the patriarchs of Israel there in the kingdom of heaven. Notice that as well. The Gentiles don't have their own separate heaven, and the Jews have their own separate right. heaven. They're all where? Same heaven, right? Same kingdom of heaven at the same table because there's only one true people of God from the beginning of time to the end of time. And we're all children of Abraham by faith. 
We are all children of Abraham, even if we come from the east and the west. Right? We come from the east, or we come from the west, whichever way it is. Every way, however way you want to look at it. You can go east from Israel and get to America. You can go west, and you'll get to America one way or the other. So we're coming from the east and the west, but if we have true faith, like the centurion, we will recline a table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of God. This according to the will of God. Isn't this what the Lord promised Abraham? In you, in your offspring, all the nations, all the families of the earth will be blessed. That's what's happening here. The families of the earth, the Gentiles, are being blessed in the offspring of Abraham, in the Lord Jesus Christ. And this man, too, is a son of Abraham. He is a true child of Abraham. And he will sit with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But who won't be there? The sons of the kingdom will be cast out into outer darkness. Here, the sons of the kingdom, he doesn't mean the true sons of the kingdom. He means the superficial, false sons of the kingdom. He's talking about the Jews, unbelieving Jews. The unbelieving Jews who are the sons of the kingdom in the sense that the promises are for them. Right? It's been delivered to them. It's been given to them. But they were not worthy of it. They did not count themselves worthy of it because they wouldn't believe in Christ. So they, though they should have been sons of the kingdom, in, in sense of proximity and access to the word of God, in sense of the promises of God and the covenants and the giving of the law, the worship, all of those things were given to them. So in that way, they are sons of the kingdom. They have greater access to the kingdom of God. But because they don't have true faith, they are going to be cast out into outer darkness in the place where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth, which is hell. They're going to go to hell even though they are Jews, Israelites. So an Israelite does not automatically go to heaven if he doesn't have faith. If he has faith, he will, but he'll go there with a centurion and he'll recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But if he doesn't believe, he'll go to hell with other Gentiles who don't have faith either. He will be cast out into that place. And then Jesus said to the centurion, Go, it shall be done for you as you have believed. And the servant was healed that very moment. So Jesus does heal his servant. The very moment that Jesus spoke the word, the man was healed. Right. And it was the way it came about. Okay, so we're going to go ahead and stop there. And uh, we'll pick up next week in verse 14.